we'll all, I imagine, have uh, our own experiences of loneliness in different situations and at different times in our lives. Um, and I just hope that something I say might touch some of you. I wanted to start by talking about my uh, mother, who died last year after a long battle with cancer. And uh, during her last few months, when she knew that time was running out for her, she became absolutely terrified of spending time alone. So we bought her a calendar with huge squares for each day, and we divided them up. Uh, so that she could see that there wasn't really a morning or an afternoon or an evening when one of her five children or one of her 14 grandchildren wouldn't be with her. But it just didn't work. She was enfolded in love. She'd never before been lonely in her life, I don't think. But she was anguish. Uh, and what she suffered facing death was the most painful loneliness I, I think I've ever seen. Well, recently, my sister sent me a passage that Pope Benedict had written about Christ's descent into the underworld, and I immediately thought of Mum's final stretch. He wrote, If there were such a thing as a loneliness that could no longer be penetrated and transformed by the word of another, if a state of abandonment were to arise that was so deep that no you could reach it anymore, then we should have real, total loneliness and dreadfulness, what theology calls hell. Today, increasing numbers of lonely people, not just in this country but all over the world, are experiencing something close to this hell. Uh, I'm not going to bombard you with um, facts and statistics through the talk, but I, I just wanted to mention some at the beginning to give, to give some kind of idea of uh, what we're dealing with. So in the past two years, childline counsellors have noticed increasing numbers of very young children, some as young as six, contacting them, complaining of loneliness, with triggers including feeling invisible, feeling ugly, feeling unpopular as a result of comparing themselves with others on social media. 7.7 7 million people in the UK live alone. And the numbers of baby boomers, that's people between about 45 and 64, living alone is increasing year on year. And a recent survey by the Office for National Statistics shows loneliness increasing rapidly in this age group. 17 people in the UK are unattached. 58% of migrants and refugees in London describe loneliness and isolation as their biggest ch challenge. Three out of four GPs say that they see between one and five lonely people a day, and only 13% of them feel equipped to help. Loneliness has a detrimental effect on health equivalent to high blood pressure, obesity, or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It wreaks havoc with sleep. Old age, Macbeth believed, should be full of honour, love, obedience, troops of friends. But about 75% of older people in the UK are lonely, and most of them have never dared admit it to their family or friends. More than a million older people in the UK feel lonely all or most of the time. Only 22% of us never feel lonely. 
and so on and on. Well, you'll know that earlier this year, Theresa May appointed Tracy Crouch, uh, the Minister for Loneliness. Her job is to fulfil the wishes of the murdered MP, Joe Cox, to turbocharge society's response to what Cox called an unseen epidemic. When I went to see uh, Crouch in her office in Whitehall, I found it full of footballs. She's also the Under Secretary for state, of State for Sport. Um, but there was no doubting her commitment to her new role, uh, nor the fact that she feels utterly overwhelmed by the challenges it presents. There is no prejudice to loneliness in terms of whom it affects, she says. So income, gender, professional background, age are irrelevant. It can impact on anybody at any time in their lives. So when I was asked by The Economist magazine 1843 to write an article about loneliness, I set out to try to answer three questions. Who does loneliness affect? What does it feel like? And can it be cured? I began by talking to Rachel, a strikingly attractive, professional, successful 35-year-old whom you would, if you were to meet her at a party, you would be absolutely amazed to find that she was lonely at all. Four years ago, when she was 31, a long-term relationship that she had hoped would end in marriage came to a very sudden end. Uh, and she has simply not really been able to get over this. At the same time, she's desperate to settle down and have children before it's too late. Lots of people cannot understand why I'm lonely, she says. I've got a good job, a lovely family, lots of close friends. But most of my friends are married now and taken up with children. I try to be happy for them, but there's no one I can ring if I've had a bad day. There's no one for whom I'm the most important one. Things like filling in forms make me feel acutely lonely. Who's my next of kin? My dad. Rachel has joined the seven million other people in Britain who are trying to find love uh, through the internet. She's been on over a hundred dates. Every time, she says, she makes a huge effort. She, as the Australians say, she gets frocked up. <laughs> but it's never yet been successful, and she travels home from each assignment feeling more lonely than if I'd never tried. How does it feel, I asked, as she opens the page on the Guardian Soulmates website, which shows that, to date, 1,305 people have viewed her, and 356 people have liked her. It feels pragmatic and sad, she says, I'm admitting that I'm lonely and I want to have a family and there's a kind of shame in that. Shame is a word that came up again and again with the lonely people I spoke to of all walks of life and all ages. She talked about the loneliness of having to present yourself in a certain way for, to make your image on the, on the Guardian Soulmates website. The distance between the image I give and the reality is getting wider and wider, she said. But if I were to write the truth, that I'm lonely and worried I might not have a family, it would be the most off-putting thing. So people seem to think of loneliness almost as an infectious disease, I suggested to her. Yes, she said, something like that. Most people find it very unattractive. 
And I said, doesn't anyone on the Guardian site ever admit to being lonely? And she said, never. And just to prove it to me, she put the word lonely into the little search box on the website where you can search for you know, people who might uh, speak Arabic or have been to school at Eton or whatever. Uh, and the answer came back, no soulmates found. So um, after talking to Rachel, I went to see the psychologist Adam Phillips, who some, some of you will know his rather brilliant books. Uh, and he talked about the frantic search for romance that makes, makes the whole problem of loneliness worse. He said, if one's living in a culture where a lot of people are lonely, there's going to be a tremendous idealisation of relationships. People are going to want more from each other than they can give. It's going to produce a compensatory dream of unbelievable ecstatic intimacy. And lots of things can be used to appease this. Sex, for example. I think in our culture there's a lot of sexualization of loneliness. I think that's what pornography is, in a sense. A despair about relationship. A despair about real exchange. And loneliness is fundamentally about someone's belief in the power of exchange. Whether we can give, other thing, give each other things that make a difference. Whether we can make each other feel better. I asked Phillips whether he thought that loneliness was hereditary, as some people suggest it is. He thought that was highly unlikely, but he did think that people who were lonely as adults were likely to have been lonely as children. Well, through the Samaritans, I was put in touch with James, uh, who was an IT entrepreneur and a property dealer who's now in his mid-40s. Looking back, he said he reckons <clears throat> he began to distance himself from his parents and their bitterly unhappy marriage when he was about six. By the time they divorced, when he was nine, he was completely separate from them. I was living in the same house as my mother and sister, he said, but I probably wouldn't spend more than 15 minutes a day in their company. I routinely had my meals alone, then went back up to my room and stayed there, alone. He was solitary at school and university, but it wasn't until he was in his early 20s and his first job that he realised how completely ill-equipped he was to deal with other human beings. I didn't fit in, he said, and I didn't, I didn't understand why not. Slowly but surely, self-doubt came into play, along with anger and anxiety. It was loneliness in the sense of real deprivation, complete lack of human contact. And what did it feel like, I asked him. He said, loneliness is worthlessness. You feel you don't fit in, that people don't understand you. You feel terrible about yourself. You feel rejected. Everyone goes to the pub, but they don't invite you. Why? Because there's something wrong with you. Well, he has been, James has been greatly helped by the Samaritans, who, for a period of uh, three years, took eight calls a day from him, and almost certainly saved his life. And he expresses his gratitude to them now in substantial financial gifts. Because for all his awkwardness and isolation, he's a self-made multimillionaire. So along with Princess Diana, Marilyn Monroe, and President Trump, who's described by his biographer Tim O'Brien as one of the loneliest people I know, 
He is, he is proof that you can't buy your way out of loneliness, however much money you have. You remain constrained by your mental processes, he says. But if money can't shield you from loneliness, poverty can certainly exacerbate it. I met Ewan at a soup kitchen in Soho. He used to manage a betting shop, but after a mental breakdown, he ended up on the streets. I'm an only child, and I've always been a loner, he told me. To be alone is just what my life is. I feel I don't deserve to be with people or to have a relationship. And what does loneliness feel like, I asked him. It's like being offered a full meal and not being able to eat it. Of course, you don't have to be single to be lonely. One of the people I spoke to while I was writing this article was Caroline, now 47, and uh, a writer so successful that if uh, I were to give you her real name, almost everybody refused to let me use their real names because of this sense of shame, uh, you, you almost certainly would know who, who I was talking about. Um, she was married for 12 years to a man who, though never cruel, felt increasingly absent. He was very gregarious, she said, always the life and soul of the party, but really very insecure. When we were alone, he would disappear into himself. He didn't really either talk or listen. There was nothing I could put my finger on. But in a way, that was the trouble. There was nothing. She remembered sitting on the lawn with him one summer's afternoon with their children playing nearby. I was feeling a bit sad, she said, because it was the 10th anniversary of my father's death. But when I mentioned it, this to him, there was a pause. I thought perhaps it was a sympathetic one, but then he said something about flying to New York the following week, and I realised, as usual, he just wasn't listening. Well, Caroline's husband started drinking seriously and things got worse. He was never really fully with me. His head was either in the office or full of alcohol. If I hadn't loved him, maybe it wouldn't have mattered, but I did, so it was very painful. She had had a stiff upper lip upbringing and she wanted the marriage to work, so she spoke to no one. <clears throat> I thought that the more visible the cracks were, the more likely it was that the whole thing would crumble. So we went around for several years, looking like the perfect family, with lovely children and good jobs, but all the time I was feeling so alone. She put her friendships on ice because she felt unable to tell people closest to her how much pain she was in. Then finally the marriage broke up and she was able to talk. And she said this awful gulf between me and everybody I cared for closed up and I wasn't so lonely anymore. And I asked her, what does loneliness feel like? And she said, it's like being surrounded by a dark void that you have no way of crossing. But there's no doubt that for some people being single is very painful. I met Katrina, a very highly intelligent psychotherapist, at a party, and when I told her what I was writing about, she immediately volunteered that she was desperately lonely and we'd be happy to talk about it. How old are you? I asked. I'm 57, she replied. Or as I have to say on the dating sites, I'm 57, but I feel 27. So one afternoon, we met for lunch and went for a walk by the Thames. 
I sensed that what she was going to tell me was going to be painful. So for a good while, we, talk about, we talked about anything but loneliness. But eventually, we sat on a bench, and I switched on my recorder, and she began to speak. It's not easy, she conceded, to talk about being lonely. Mental health problems and depression are quite fashionable now, but loneliness is not fashionable. There's something shameful about it. It's my fault. There's something wrong with me. I'm a horrible person. I mentioned to her that at a dinner in Oxford recently, a rather brisk American woman had suggested to me that the solution to loneliness lay in keeping friendships in good shape, or as she put it, lonely people need to frexercise. But Katrina explained that as loneliness gets a grip, this becomes more and more difficult. It took me a very long time to actually think of myself as someone who's lonely, she reflected, and I feel I've only really done that in the last four years or so. If you have a good social life, and you have people in your life you've known a long time, and you make friends easily, which I do, it's very easy to feel unlonely because you're quite busy and you're not short of interactions with people. But I have found, for whatever reason, that I don't socialise anymore in that way. It's partly that friends seem so immersed in their own lives. Some are now retiring, moving out of London, becoming grandparents. So the circle has really narrowed. I just spend an awful lot more time on my own. And it's partly that she's come to accept that hectic socialising will never satisfy her deepest longings. What you really need are people that know you very well and care about you and are available to you, she says, and that you can just contact about anything at any time. But I don't have that, and it's very lonely. I can't just pick up the phone and say, do you want to come over? Do you want to go to the cinema? What are you doing at the weekend? That simply doesn't exist for me now. I didn't really notice it happening, but it has. So I'm caught in a vicious circle. If you feel you're unlovable, you feel you can't be around people, and this enforces feelings of isolation, and so it goes on. I wondered whether getting past childbearing age brought some kind of relief, because that possibility is finally ruled out. Oh God, she said, it wasn't a relief to me. It's an ongoing grief. I thought it would go away after my thirties. I thought, if this doesn't make biological sense, it won't make psychological sense. But in fact, it just got worse. All she wants now, she says, is to share her life in very ordinary ways with one other person. I think the whole meaning of life is sharing and relationships and companionship. It's almost as if doing things on your own isn't really doing them. If there's no one to reflect you or relate to you, it's almost as if you stop existing. And what does loneliness feel like, I asked her. It feels like a bereavement, like an enormous loss. It also feels like suffocating, tight, strangling, suffocating, even though it's an absence. As old age hovers on the horizon for Katrina, the loneliness strengthens. I don't really have anything good to remember, she says. I, I think about not having done any marvellous things, and it's a sickening thought. I notice tiny things begin to go wrong with me physically, and I think there's nobody who cares or knows what I'm doing now. If something bad happened to me, who would know? It's a perfectly valid concern. In the autumn of last year, the body of 68-year-old Mary Conlon was found in her flat in Larkspur Rise in Belfast. 
She'd been dead for nearly three years. In a statement, her family said that they were shocked and heartbroken at the death of their beloved sister. Call me cruel, but how beloved could she have been if they hadn't seen or spoken to her since the beginning of 2015? I dropped into my local funeral director to see how often they were presented with bodies which had lain alone in flats until they began to decompose. The answer was that it did happen quite regularly. And if this is shocking, it's not really surprising. More than half of men and women over 75 in Britain live alone. Through age concern, I was put in touch with Barry, 85 years old and widowed. He took me to lunch at the pub where he used to often go with his, friend, with his wife, Christine. He continues to talk about we and our rather than I and my. Christine was 15 years younger than Barry, so they always quietly assumed that he would be the one to go first. Then she developed a brain tumour. Her sudden death, Barry said, left me in a state of physical shock so deep it defies description. My future became a wasteland full of empty days. We live in a society that admires independence, but derides isolation. Back in the summer of 1960, following the death of his wife, Joy, C.S. Lewis wrote of the agony of becoming a free agent. I'd like to meet, he wrote to Peter Bide, the priest who had married them, for I am, oh God that I were not, very free now. One doesn't realise in early life that the price of freedom is loneliness. To be happy is to be tied. This was exactly Barry's experience. He finds it hard to say where his grief ends and his loneliness begins, but together he experienced them as a penetrating hurt that doesn't dissipate, a mental thing that becomes physical and robs you of all motivation. I got very near to losing the will to live. Despair is always knocking on the door for the, for the lonely. When he was speaking, I thought of um, something that Cardinal Hume wrote. Uh, Grief is loneliness, wrote Cardinal Hume. A sickening sorrow at night, on awakening a terrible dread. Another's words do not help. A reasoned argument explains little for having tried too much. And I spoke to other elderly people who were lonely. For 91-year-old Robbie, living in Kent and a widower since 2012, loneliness is not having something to do nothing with. He's been out of, he, he hasn't been out of his front door except for, to hospital for two years now, and he keeps his television permanently on as company. A lot of the time he says, I'm not really watching it, but then something interesting comes on, and I turn around and say, cool, look at that and there's nobody there. Vanessa, now 80, used to work in fashion. I still hunt for clothes in charity shops, she says, but you can't hunt for friends. And what does her loneliness feel like? It freezes you. You can hardly get out of bed. I wake up and think, what the hell shall I do? I make little lists, try to tell myself that today is a new day. Well, I was keen to find something positive or hopeful 
uh, to say about loneliness. And uh, I had a conversation with um, an author called Sarah Maitland. Do, do any of you know her book about silence? Yes. Um, so she has lived on her own now for 20 years uh, in a remote Scottish valley with the nearest shop 10 miles away and very intermittent um, mobile signal and internet. Um, when she moved there, she had never lived on her own and she was, she told me, eagerly awaiting, being thoroughly miserable and having one more thing to blame my ex-husband for. <laughs> Instead, though, she found herself becoming fascinated by silence, by what happens to the human spirit, to identity and personality, when the talking stops, when you press the off button, when you venture out into that enormous emptiness. One of the things that happened for Sarah was that depression, and she said that she had assumed throughout her adult life that this was simply part of her personality, uh, ceased to trouble her. She now thinks of urban life and being surrounded by, by people with horror. Well, Sarah's kind of isolation, very extreme with uh, black-faced sheep for neighbours, um, is what something maybe not that many people could, could manage. But I did wonder whether there were less radical ways in which people who are alone can learn to convert the desolation of loneliness into the richness of solitude. So just near here, I came to meet Lawrence Freeman, who I imagine you all know, yes. And um, I, was, I was really bowled over by his understanding of human nature and of how loneliness kind of works on people. Uh, he immediately drew a distinction between solitude and loneliness. And he said that for him, loneliness is a failed solitude. In his experience, and this was very much my experience too, talking to people for this article, there's a shame, there's a terrible feeling of failure in loneliness, and that brings with it shame. He said, lonely people feel that they should be connected, and if they feel disconnected, alienated, then that must mean they've made a mistake, or they've been pushed into this by fate, or by something they've done. This can often involve a combination of paranoia and a very high level of judgmentalism about others. So they're trapped both ways. They feel judged, and they're also judgmental. Solitude, he believes, and particularly solitude and meditation, which I was not allowed to say in The Economist article <laughs> because they're so anti-religious, um, is the discovery and acceptance of your uniqueness. It's not just having knowledge about yourself, it's ac the actual experience of being, which is what we taste in meditation. Solitude in this sense is the basis of relationship. Entering into the solitude of oneself, one's uniqueness, prepares you for deeper, more authentic relationships. More recently than that, I've met a very remarkable uh, Cistercian monk called Eric Varden, who's just brought out uh, a truly astonishing book called uh, the, Sh the Shattering of Loneliness. Um, he's the abbot of the Cistercian monastery at Mount St. Bernard in Leicestershire. Um, and he told me about his friendship with the Benedictine monk Sebastian Moore, <clears throat> no longer alive. Um, Moore, he said, suffered from very severe depression and loneliness. And one day said to Varden, when I feel like this, 
there's only one thing to do, I must go and visit the sick. So if one lonely person can reach out to another, then loneliness is eased. Varden also writes this in, in this new book of his. The anguish of the world is embraced by an infinite benevolence, investing it with purpose. It's a, it's a really beautiful sentiment, but I asked him how one could tell that to somebody who is suffering acutely from loneliness, and particularly somebody who has no faith. One can only try to communicate it, Varda replied, by trying to embody the benevolence without naming it. As St Francis is said to have said, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. His words reminded me of something Jean Vanier, the founder of the Larche Communities, once said to me. He said, the closer you are to Jesus, the closer he will be to those around you. Asked how to begin to make the world a better place, I have very often heard Jean Vanier suggest to people that they find one lonely person and make them a part of their lives. For Mother Teresa, this was the only possible solution to what she considered the worst scourge of our time. I think the greatest suffering in the world is being lonely, Mother Teresa wrote, feeling unloved, just having no one. I have come more and more to realise that it is being unwanted that is the worst disease that any human being can ever experience. Nowadays, we've found medicine for leprosy and lepers can be cured. For all kinds of diseases and there are medicines and cures. But for being unwanted, except where there are willing hands to serve and there's a loving heart to love, I don't think this terrible disease can ever be cured.